Welcome to another episode of Thriving Through Menopause. I'm your host, Clarissa Christensen, and this is the line that really resonated with me. What will I be if I'm not perfect? Yeah, perfectionism is something that many of us as women can relate to, and maybe we've been praised for being perfect. Maybe that's something a teacher or a parent has given us. Maybe that's part of our family rules. But today we're going to explore that along with people-pleasing and somebody who has written a book about her own journey. And I'm joined by Margaret Gilmetti. I hope I have said that right. And she is an author of Brave-ish, which I just love the title of. So welcome to the show, Margaret. Thank you so much, Clarissa. I am so, so grateful to be here. I'm a big fan of what you're doing, re-energizing and reclaiming our voices and our expression in midlife. Hallelujah. I couldn't put it better myself, so I'm very, 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 very grateful to be uh, talking to you today. We have had some really interesting pre-conversation, but I love your book. And obviously your book, as you're going to tell us, is about, it's about travel, but it's about so much more, isn't it? Well, it it definitely ended up being that way. I thought I was going to be writing a book of my traveler's tales, uh, living on four continents and visiting 50 countries and being an expatriate for most of my life. And as I wrote, it occurred to me, oh, I'm also writing the journey of really reclaiming my voice in midlife and beyond. So the, the, the muses spoke to me in the middle of writing the book. Isn't that wonderful? It's like the book, yeah, kind of the journey unfolded and became so much bigger. You've lived on four different continents. Just for the listeners, share a little bit about the places you have lived and how that came about. Oh, okay. Well, it came about because living on four different continents is because I've been a lifelong traveler. My mom said, I was born with one foot rooted in my hometown and one foot out in the world, which is a kind of an odd visual, quite honestly, but it's really how I am. I really do love, I grew up outside of Chicago and I do love Chicago and the States, but I, I've always, always, always wanted to see the world. So I've always been a traveler. And then when I met and married my Swiss husband, he's always been an expatriate and it was really important for him to be inside of cultures and his job in the hotel industry took us inside many cultures. So we met in Chicago, then we moved to New York, to Paris, to Cairo, to Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, to Chiang Mai, Thailand, to Bangkok, back to Chicago, back to Singapore, back to Chicago. And now he travels professionally as much as he can. and, And that's still our greatest passion is exploring the world and getting to know the world. I love that. As a as a, pers- a fellow traveler, I so love that. I mean, I think it's a great privilege, isn't it, to get underneath the skin of a culture. Absolutely. And I, I really do credit Patrick, my husband, for I probably honestly would have been happy to continue being a traveler and travel as in-depth as I could. But I must say, living, as you say, inside a different culture, which I know you know very well, is a very, very different experience. It has been the greatest privilege of my life, and I have learned so much. And I wanted to share what I learned from living inside other cultures, things that I never would have learned if I hadn't left home 
And that's not to say that people need to travel far, but I do love when people are willing to look a little bit beyond the borders of just, you know, our own town. Yeah, definitely. And I think we learn a lot about the culture and we understand other people, but you know, I think we get closer to what how much our common humanity binds us together. Amen to that. Yes, that's absolutely been my experiences everywhere we've lived. Yes, I just feel closer to other humans. I, I think we are all the same in terms of wanting sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We need shelter, we need food, but we also want love. We want connection. We want a fellowship. And I think living in other cultures has allowed me to see how people do that slightly differently than me, but we are, we're all still, you know, as my parents would always say, people are people are people. So they really, I'm grateful to say, encouraged me from a very early age to get out into the world and to learn other languages and to be in other cultures. So I'm grateful that you share that passion. Yeah, definitely. And I think that it has been my greatest privilege too. But your book goes deeper than that, much, much deeper than you lived here, lived there. I mean, it's a, it is such a journey of self-discovery. And as you said, it may have started as a travel book, but it wasn't. I mean, somewhere very early on, you talk about your family handbook, your family rules. Talk and share a bit about, you know, some of those and how they, in many ways, you know, set up the parameters of how you were when you were a younger woman. Thank you for calling that out because that's another thing that the muses spoke to me literally in the middle of the night. I woke up in the, in the midst of, of trying to braid together these two narratives, the literal journey and the emotional journey. And I was looking for sort of an umbrella. And again, I was awakened in the middle of the night with this concept of a family handbook, not a literal handbook, but a metaphorical volume that I inherited from my parents who got a handbook too. I personally believe everyone gets a handbook. <laughs> and I was lucky that in my Davis, my maiden name Davis family handbook, there were many, many rules, which I think are good rules to live by, but not in excess. And really the way I was raised was, you know, if you want it done right, do it yourself. Well, yes and no. If there's one piece of advice I would give to my younger self or to anyone, quite honestly, it would be no. I, that's not my experience as a grown-up is that people are, in fact, really, really want to help. I'm not alone. I don't need to do it alone. Another one was don't air your dirty laundry in public. And I have found that as a storyteller, I do a lot of live storytelling the stories that actually connect me to the audience are ones where I'm vulnerable and I share with people about my experiences with infertility or how hard it was for our marriage to survive sometimes, my journey with addiction. So it's if I don't share myself in a genuine way, if I don't share my dirty laundry to a certain extent, people don't connect. I think people can tell when we're not being real with them. But I would say, since this is thriving through menopause, the one that's really probably one of the ones which has been most important to me in menopause and in midlife is letting go of always put others first. I love to put others first. I am, as you called out, a people pleaser for sure. But something I've learned, I'm 61 now, in this age is to also put myself first <laughs> to make sure that I put my own 
dreams and passions first, or if not always first, at least it's not last every time. So I've had to take this family handbook with these rules, which sort of drove me to play out a lot of roles for a long time until I became conscious of what was driving me. I've rewritten the rules to have them be a much gentler set of guidelines. Yeah. And I think that is something that I can relate to. That is something that I'm sure many of the listeners can relate to. I mean, the rules are not bad in themselves, but as you said, when we live them too tightly, they don't always serve us, particularly as I think we go through challenges in our lives. There's a point in the book there when you talk about wanting to do certain things. And it was, I think it was in Egypt, but you might correct me about you want to do everything. And people say, no, no, other people have to do things. And you had to let go of some control. <laughs> I think I would share it better than I did, Margaret. I thought there was, there was a very, some very poignant moments when I think we like to control and think everything's safe under our control, but really we have to let others in, don't we? Oh, absolutely. That has been a great blessing in my life, but that is still something I struggle with terrifically. I love to be in control. I really do love to be in control. And it's a self-soothing mechanism for me. When I'm feeling out of control, if I can scramble my way and scrabble my way back to some semblance of control, but I've really learned that I'm in control of very, very, very little in my life. You know, there's that whole holding my arms out in front of me in a circle in front of me. That's essentially the limit of my control. My person. And so you're right. I've really on this journey showed how letting go of feeling that I could be in control, was in control, needed to be in control, wanted to be in control. I've had to surrender quite a bit of that, but I do still struggle. That's an old, old story for me to hold on really tight and do everything perfectly. If I do that, I will feel safe. I will feel good. And so I still struggle to try to always be holding lightly. And as you mentioned, to give other people the blessing also of doing things and doing things for me, that's still hard for me. I want to be the one who puts all the emotional deposits in the emotional bank account first before I dare to withdraw even a penny. And my friends have long called out, you know what, we actually would like to do things for you and we really don't need you to be happy and positive and in control all the time. It is a blessing to let others be helpful. Yeah. And I think that is for so many of us in midlife, a huge lesson because we are, as women, taught to be serving others. Our job is to put others first, to please them. And that means that we often take on control. And that isn't always good for us mentally and emotionally, because we don't have finite resources. I completely agree with that. I don't have, my resources are finite. And I also, it's really not fair to the other person, which took me a long time to understand that I was in people pleasing and in enabling and in living everyone else's life for them. They actually don't need that from me. <laughs> which was a bit of a shock to me. I have to admit, it's still a bit of a shock to me with my husband that he doesn't need me to make all sorts of decisions and whatnot. He's perfectly capable of doing it <laughs> without me. But 
I mean, talking there about we don't need, yeah, and sometimes our partners don't need us. And, and I think obviously you share a little bit about your own journey because you were unable to have children. But I think that we do that with our children too. We do, every, and I mean, I did so much. And then suddenly we're surprised why women in their late 40s and 50s burn out because we just keep giving and giving and giving. And often we're giving from an empty thing. So true. And I do, not having had children, I, I really, I hear you and I see that in all my friends who have children. I did experience that caring for my parents at the end of their life where I was really scrambling for a long time to try to make everything better, even though it was clear they were nearing the end of life. And I was trying to make my father in particular happy really in until the end of his life. And I was absolutely out of fuel, absolutely on my last ounce of energy really, and got some wonderful advice from therapist who said that I was using compassion in overdrive. She said, once you dip over into overdrive, Margaret, <laughs> it's really not about the other person. It's about me trying to continue being perfect, trying to continue being doing everything for the other person. And she said, you, I had to learn to stop doing that, to be, she said, I will always be compassionate. And I, be, I believe that to be true. And I'm grateful, but to stop feeling that I had to absolutely completely empty myself for another person, because it doesn't work for starters. And it le left me completely empty. So I have a bit of a sense of what you're talking about with parents, kind of a, a different. A different dynamic, a different dynamic, but still the same that we give till we have nothing left. Yeah. One of the things you've touched on in the book is about your addictions and the very subtly woven through the book, but clearly a huge part of you in this story is about that and about overcoming your addiction. I'd love you to share more about that. I'm very happy to share about that. I also think that's an issue I see with women of a certain age. What happened for me at 40 was when Patrick's job took us overseas and I, my job was not something that could move overseas. I really found myself faced with a void of, oh my gosh, I don't have a business card and this feeling of who am I? And I really started to fill that void with many of the perfect roles but also I really did turn to alcohol because I felt so lost, so lost. And I think that's true for a lot of women once they, maybe their children have left home and they really don't quite know all of what they're doing anymore. So I think it's something I see in a lot of, of, of women of a certain age. In my case, I really am grateful that I realized it's not what I wanted going forward. I did reach out for help from what I, in the book, choose to call God. And having been raised not in a religious tradition, that was a really an act of desperation for me to call out to something I didn't even know I could ask for help for. But I got help. And in the book, as you'll see, I do end up having, I have quite a conversational relationship with what I call God. But it also allowed me to get the help I needed to now not be in my active addiction. And I'm eternally grateful for that. So 
it's another time where I needed to learn to ask for help and to know that help is out there. And so I love letting people know that help is out there for anyone at any stage of their lives and any stage of that journey. It's, it's never too late to start to live the life that we're meant to live. No, exactly. And I think you, you really hit the nail on the head there, Margaret, when you talked about there being a void. And a few weeks ago, we had Sarah Rutzbach on, and she's now a alcohol recovery coach. And her story in Australia was very similar to yours. Her husband got a job. She moved from the high-powered job in London. And suddenly there she was in Sydney. And, and I mean, she said that she already drank quite a lot. But having no career, having no purpose, sitting at home, feeling lost in a new culture, she started to you know, down a few glasses of wine by herself during the day, and it led to some significant problems for her. So, I mean, I hear some parallels in that, that suddenly we are maybe asking, who am I? I think that that is, as you say, that's the commonality. I do know other people who don't happen to use alcohol. Maybe they use work. They dive deeper and deeper and deeper into work to find out, to sort of reassure themselves, oh, this is who I am. I know people who use food because it kind of it has the same effect. Of it. it dulls the emotions that may feel really uncomfortable. In the book, it's, it's kind of an amusing thing to me now, but the, when I knew that I needed help was I went online and I had had too much to drink, but it wasn't the drinking. It was that I ended up ordering many, many pairs of earrings. I love earrings, <laughs> and, and I still have those earrings. I love those earrings. But the next morning I realized, wow, I am, I've never been a big shopper. I'm trying to fill this void with everything. And it really occurred to me, I can't fill a void with anything external. I need to see what's going on. It's, it's sort of that it's an inside job. So I had tried with food before and I had tried with work before and now I was going to try it with earrings. <laughs> and I thought, oh, wait, <laughs> something has to change. Yes. And talk about, I mean, was that the tipping point for you when you actually had that realization the next morning? It really was. I know a lot of people say, oh, was it a big blowout? Was it some big party? Was it, were you dancing on the tables? It's like, no, I, I bought a lot of earrings that I hadn't intended to buy. And I knew it was, I was just trying to fill in the void by distracting myself by, I mean, I'm a big believer in, in doing nice things for ourselves, but I could feel in my heart that I was not, the void was not meant to be filled in with something external. So yes, that actually was my turning point. Yes. That, that's amazing. I mean, that's amazing. It sometimes is as small as that. You know, women have talked about driving in the road and, and, you know, having to slam the brakes on or, you know, suddenly realizing that, you know, we've done something that seems a little irrational, you know, to just shop lots of earrings. You know, it seems small, but it is a big moment. It's that big aha moment when you stop and question. You've shared a lot about that becoming an inside job. Tell me about that journey to that getting the, you know, the, what you need from inside yourself rather than outside yourself. What were some of the key steps for you in that process? Well, I think, first of all, admitting that something's wrong 
and, as I say, asking for help and accepting help. Those steps for me were revolutionary for someone who's a recovering perfectionist and who was living by the set of very rigid rules. It did not feel acceptable to me to, you know, not do it myself. It did not feel acceptable to me to air my dirty laundry. I felt like I needed to just keep going. So in the book, I talk about the sense of sort of three phases in my life of being unconsciously incompetent. Because many people will say, well, why didn't you express yourself more? Why didn't you tell people you were lonely? Why didn't you tell people you were frustrated? I did not know at that age. I don't think I even knew that I was allowed to have those feelings. I couldn't even recognize those feelings, let alone express them. So this coming to realize that, oh, something's wrong, not with me, but something I, I need help, allowed me to become consciously incompetent. So I was still incompetent. I still wasn't good at expressing myself outside of the rule book, but at least I knew I want to change. And with help, I'm sure I can find a path here. Even though I don't see the path ahead, I'm going to walk down the path. And now I like to think of myself as consciously becoming more competent. So I think for any of us, that's the journey. I want to be awake. And so stopping drinking, in my case, allowed me to become a lot more awake and to look at what was driving me and then learn to live differently. Yeah. And I love those three stages because I think we're relatable to those, whatever our personal situation is. A lot of the time we're wandering around and and we're not sure what we're doing and uh, we're not in touch with ourselves. We're out of touch with who we are. We're just as you said so beautifully, unconsciously incompetent. We are not in touch with our emotions. And I think as you, you know, that not knowing how to express it, not even recognizing it maybe, Margaret, for what it is. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in my case, that was absolutely the truth. Many, many close friends who've read the book said, oh, I'm so sorry if I had only known you were suffering, I would have been there for you. And I said, that's on me. I'm not blaming myself, but I did not tell anyone. (laughs) I did not know to tell anyone. So I say now, of course, I would be throwing myself on the mercy of friends and strangers alike. I have learned to do that, but I had to learn. As you say, That's I think that's the journey for all of us. I completely agree with you. Yeah. And, and so many of us, I think, particularly in our age group, we, we didn't come from a kind of a cultural norm where you shared anything. I mean, today there's more sharing open. We see more people telling their story on social media to complete strangers, which is also a little, a little strange and takes time for any of us to do to tell that story. But we are, we came from when, as you said, you don't tear your dirty laundry in public. And I think that has been very true for so many of us. That that is exactly what we didn't do. We kept everything behind closed doors. We had masks verbally on, smiling. And so not surprisingly, our friends and even our members of our family didn't know what we were experiencing. So true. And that state of consciously incompetent, What did that feel like for you, Margaret? Of being unconsciously incompetent? No, consciously incompetent. That your second stage. 
Ah, uh, it felt very unfamiliar for the reasons you just said. It felt a little scary to me, honestly, to be suddenly really in touch with what I was feeling. As I was raised to be unrelentingly positive, it felt threatening for me to be in touch with some quote-unquote negative emotions. I mean, I really didn't know about anger and loan. I was experiencing them, but I wasn't admitting them. So I would say it was pretty scary, but it also, I could feel already the freedom. It always to me feels like a closed room. And when I open up the door, even a crack, some fresh air gets in, some light gets in. And I don't think that door ever closes again fully. I do think once we let the light in, we start to become fuller versions of ourselves. I really have come to learn that even if everyone I loved decided to abandon me, which is probably my deepest fear, I'd be okay. But I had to get to that point of realizing I need to be myself and more fully, genuinely myself. And if I risk that some people can't deal with that because they, and I mean, some people were a bit shocked, quite honestly, I had trained them how to be around me and they were used to me being always positive, always putting them first, always being helpful, always, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I got some pushback from some people and that was perhaps a, a bit shocking to me, but I, re I just said, you know what? I believe everyone has the right to change and this is who I am. So I hope that you can embrace it. And it was a bit of a shock to some people, but it's worth it because I felt like it was honestly, it sounds a little overly dramatic, but I felt like it was my mortal soul that was in question here. Was I going to be who I am or was I going to, to use your beautiful image, live the rest of my life constantly behind a mask with a suit of armor on, with my superwoman cape, with halos on. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of gear to put on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just visualizing you there, Margaret, with all that. Uh, that is exactly what we do, don't we? We go up looking like we can do it all, smiling when we really uh, don't feel like it. And we say yes, and I'm sure you can relate to that. We're saying yes when we dearly love no to be the conversation because that's what we've been taught to do, to please and say yes. And it's quite hard, isn't it, to say those words no and not have to qualify it either. That's the key. You're so right. Not that I still practice that. You know, I do tend to want to make a bigger story around it. And I'm really lucky my husband is someone who really will say, try to simply ask for what you want or what you need. That's still hard for me. I still want to, oh, but you know, I will, as you say, qualifying things. And now I've learned people who love me want me to be well. They want to help and they want me to be asking for what I want. They want to see me shine just the way I and you want to see everyone else shine. It's like, why wouldn't that be true for me too? I sometimes feel like everyone else has a right not to be perfect except me. And I'm really, it's still, I feel like it's a lifelong journey to be letting go of that. And you and I, in trying to set up this conversation, I really made a big mistake. And you were incredibly gracious about life 
happens. But I have to tell you, I was just desperate with the fact that I had let you down. I had done this terrible thing. And you were so gracious and said, it's not a problem. Life happens. I was like, what? (laughs) Doesn't she know I let her down? (laughs) Yeah. And I knew, and I was like, okay, well, that's just how it is. And I've learned that as well. Because, you know, I was a relentless people pleaser too, in many, many ways. And, you know, now I, and I have a husband that says to me, just say what you need or stop you know, stop being in control, stop doing that, just be happy and do what you need to do. He's a much more chilled person. But, I, you know, we had a little there where the music played. I would have tolerated that in a previous life and I would have been gritting my teeth. But I would and I just think, no, I just ask you to pause and I go up there and I just go. So we're having one of these days when everybody wants to be in on the game. <laughs> but, but, you know, life, life is like that. And I think that's part of the journey is knowing that we can't be in control. We cannot be in control of other people and other people's situations. And we have to, you know, unless it's done deliberately, it's just the way things are. People are busy, life happens. You know, we're not, we're just not, we're not perfect. We're perfectly imperfect. That's beautiful. That's music to my ears and I need to hear it every day. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, the book is here now and it's out. The book has spawned a whole new career for you, has it not? It is interesting. Once I really came into regaining my voice, I really started off when my parents were so ill and I was spending much more time in Chicago, I thought I need something that's not just pre-grieving the loss of my mom. So I signed up for improvisation at Second City and fell head over heels in love with that. So that was the beginning of my refining my voice. And then there was storytelling. And then I did a solo show about really kind of growing up with my mom and getting right with my mom And especially the realization that I had heard something many, many years ago, and I had made it mean something else. So the release from that, how important that was. And then this book, and now I'm going to be teaching Introduction to Memoir. And I'm really so grateful for the conversations because it allows me to do what's most important to me as an artist, which is connect with an audience and see if I can be helpful if I can inspire, if I can entertain. I'm so grateful. So you're right. The the book has been in this series of creative expressions is now opening up different doors that I wasn't even expecting. So amazing. And it's like now you're consciously on this new journey uh, and really by the book, which was meant to be maybe initially a travel book, became a book about about you, Margaret, and your transformation. Well, and I, I hope, I, it certainly as a memoir, it is about me, but I also really hope it's something that other people can relate to. I do, when I tell stories or, or in response to the book, people will say, you know, thank you for sharing that about, for example, infertility, because another mask that I wore for a long time was, as you say, gritting my teeth and smiling and still hoping we would get pregnant and it it never happening. That was a really, really awful, awful, awful time in my life because I wasn't sharing with anyone how deeply in pain I was. And so when people come up to me and say, I'm experiencing that, or my sister is, this is why I do art is in the hopes that someone will be able to see something 
that maybe offers them some freedom or some delight. I mean, I do love to entertain people. And the travel stories are largely, you know, stupid things I've done, besides things I've learned in other cultures, and also seminal moments. I mean, a couple of moments where living overseas, I really did for the first time say no. <laughs> as you say, as your husband says, just say no. It's like, what? Say no. I can't say no. I don't want to ever say no to anything or anyone. But I have, I'm learning. <laughs> yeah, I think that is, if anything, I think that's, that is a huge message from the book that we are all, particularly as women, learning no, and that no can be a complete sentence. <laughs> that I need to remember. I'm picture. I'm see. I'm a very visual person. I'm seeing that right. N O, and then I see a period after it. So thank you for that. Full stop. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, Margaret, it's such a delight to share a small glimpse into this this journey that you're on. For the listeners, where can they get in touch with you, and where can they get your book, Brave Ish? Thank you, Clarissa. Well, my website is www, then my first and last names, which I can spell out, but I, I bet you'll have written down someplace for your listeners. They'll be in the show notes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the book is available through any bookseller. If they don't have it in stock, they can order it. So it's available that way. And I would be very grateful to any listener who chooses to journey with me and I really welcome comments from people. I love to hear other people's stories. I love to help people get their stories out into the world. That's another beauty of being this age is I really feel I get the chance to help everyone else get their voice into the world. It was hard one for me. I know it's hard one for other people. And so people are welcome to contact me at margaret at margaretgilmetti.com, <laughs> but on my website as well. So I, I'd love to be in touch with people. And I'm so grateful for this conversation, Clarissa. Well, I think it's a beautiful conversation and one, Margaret, that I'm grateful that we made this conversation come together and that we shared and, and, and were able to talk and so many important messages for people to kind of, I think, think about in their own journey. And certainly I highly recommend that you read Margaret's book. It's entertaining, extremely entertaining in places, but also some very poignant, heartfelt moments and some real, I think, points that we all can take to ourselves and, and you know, become on that path to something different, to being consciously on a journey. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.